Good morning, church. Good to be with you all this morning. I want to call your attention to Paul's letter to Philemon. And the title of our message this week is going to be Reconciling Relationships, Part 2. Our responsibilities in reconciliation. Last week we took some time to consider the reasons for reconciliation that can be understood from the first part of Paul's letter. And those reasons are really foundational in understanding the responsibilities that we have when it comes to reconciliation. And that's going to be the focus of this message this morning. As we pick up where we left off, we're going to talk about our responsibilities when it comes to reconciliation. And I think it's helpful to reiterate a couple of reasons why I think that this is a, this is a topic that we need continual instruction on, why we need to be reminded, why we really need to major on this subject. Okay? You know that we live in a fallen world, and we're fallen. We can and often do sin. And when we do sin, the most egregious thing about it is that our sin is against God. It's an affront to God. But there's also a blast radius, and other people are affected, right? So my sin often is directly against somebody or at least implicates other people. And when this happens, there's harm done to a relationship. There's a fracture and reconciliation is needed. Understanding reconciliation is understanding how to repair relationships when we hurt one another. This is an extremely practical matter, isn't it? The The second reason is that pursuing reconciliation is how we effectively display the gospel when relationships are broken. Our mission statement at Cornerstone is to make disciples of Jesus by declaring and displaying the gospel together. We declare by what we say, we display by what we do, and when we experience relational difficulty, when there's a fracture, when you sin or when somebody sins against you, what you do now, what happens next is a profound opportunity for the gospel to be put on display. For people to see the implication of the gospel in our lives. Because reconciliation is at the heart of the good news. Okay? We, God did not count your sins against you. Your sins separated you from God. But God reconciled you to himself by putting Christ forward as a propitiation for your sins through his blood. You get God back. This is the most tragic part about our sin. We're separated. We're alienated away from God. And in his mercy, he reconciles us to himself. And now having been the recipients of that, having received that grace, having been reconciled to God, not based on any merit of our own, this is something that should characterize the way that we think and something that we should prioritize in our lives and in our relationships. Okay? It's something that we are expected to pursue whenever we sin or whenever we're sinned against. It's an expectation for us. Okay? We must develop and maintain and strengthen that conviction in order to be ready to fulfill our responsibilities toward reconciliation. Now, before we jump into our text and talk about our responsibilities, I want to take just a quick moment to talk about what we aren't responsible for. And this comes from, I had a great question from a dear sister last week who caught me in the, in the foyer and said, well, well, Pastor Roger, what about this? What about a scenario when somebody's unwilling to reconcile? What about when somebody's gone? What about when circumstances make that impossible? What are we responsible for? And this is a really, really good question. Really good question because reconciliation or the coming back together of two parties the exemption of hostility that we're aimed at, the restoration of fellowship, that's, that's what reconciliation accomplishes. That requires both parties to do their part, right? You can't do that in a one-sided way, okay? So you may have sinned and sought forgiveness, but another party refuses to grant forgiveness. That prevents reconciliation, okay? Or you may have been sinned against and you stand ready to say, I forgive you. I want to forgive you. I'm showing you mercy. I don't want to hold this against you. But the one who offended you has has cut you off or said, I'm not going to confess my sin. I'm not interested in reconciliation. Or they're gone. 
Somebody has died. And it's not even possible now. There are a number of situations like this, right? We, we can't control those things. And so in one very practical sense, when we talk about our responsibilities, we should recognize you are not responsible for the outcome or for the responses of others. Right? You're not responsible for the outcome or for the responses of others, but you are responsible for your heart attitude, for your desires, and for your actions. You are always responsible for being willing to reconcile and for being active in your part of working toward reconciliation while you can. You always have that responsibility, whether you're the offender or the one offended, or perhaps both. That's often the case. There's rarely a situation where there's a fracture in a relationship and and, um, there's a sinless person involved. So typically, both are needed. So there's comfort in this. There's comfort in this when we think about what we're not responsible for, but I, I... I also want to make sure that we understand there's a challenge in this because our willingness isn't based on their willingness. Their willingness or unwillingness is not the factor that determines whether or not I'm responsible to work for reconciliation, right? We, we get this wrong, left and right. This is so important. They may not want it. They may not deserve it. And, it may be, and they may be legitimately preventing it. They don't want to reconcile. You are still responsible for being willing and ready. You are still responsible for doing what you can. This will be reiterated in our text as we work through this today. Follow along with me while I, while I read beginning at verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useless or useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would accept me. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, For I hope that through our prayers I'll be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word that we know is inspired by you and it is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is everything that we need for life and godliness. And we thank you that it speaks so clearly to matters that are so practical in our lives. Lord, we admit our brokenness. We all know that we sin, we hurt each other, and we need your help to understand what we ought to do when reconciliation is needed. Lord, we need to have in our hearts solidified the convictions that support, that motivate a proper response. Lord, give us clarity as we think about these responses today. Would you please help Help me to speak the truth from your text in a way that's clear and helpful. And would you prepare all of our hearts to hear from you so that we can be shored up and strengthened and prepared to give you glory in the way that we work things out with one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Amen. Hey, here's, the, here's the main idea of our message today. Participation in the Christian faith results in shared responsibilities to work toward reconciliation with And for one another. Participation in the Christian faith. Results in 
responsibilities here. Let's begin with verses 8 through 11, where we see that the first responsibility is to appeal. The first responsibility that we have is to appeal confidently for love's sake. I want to remind us of something important here. If you were here last week, you remember me pointing out that this letter addresses a conflict between Philemon and Onesimus, and Paul is not directly involved in the original issue. He was not giving or receiving the offense. There's something that has to be worked out between these two brothers. So, what, what are we often inclined to do in a situation like that? What's your impulse when two parties have a conflict, when two parties have an unreconciled relationship, and you're not directly involved? What do we, what do we do? It's been my observation, it's been my temptation and my observation with others that it's, it's sort of become a badge of honor to say, that's not my business. Right? It's not, it's not, it's not my business. That's their issue. I'll let them work it out if they want to. I don't want to be seen as taking sides. I don't want to contribute to a problem. That's their issue. But is it just their issue when you are in covenant with somebody? If you have covenant relationships with other people, is it just their issue or do you have something to do with it? Paul seems to think so. Paul seems to think that the nature of our relationship bears on us. It leads to a responsibility. So you notice what happens here. Paul is assuming the responsibility to appeal to Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus. He knows that unreconciled relationships between Christians is a distortion of the gospel. And an unreconciled relationship within the family becomes a concern for the family. Okay? A broken part of the body affects the whole body. And even though he can't be responsible for their responses, he takes responsibility for them. Do you see that? Okay. He takes responsibility for them as his brothers. You, you understand how this works. If you're a parent and you have children, you know that ultimately you cannot determine how your kids will respond, how they will grow up, and what direction they will go. But you also know that you take responsibility for them. You shepherd them. You do everything that you can to lead them in the way and steer them away from the wrong path because you're responsible for them, even though you're not responsible for their responses. Okay, This is how a covenant works. Okay, Your spouse is your responsibility. Your kids are your responsibility. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are your responsibility. Okay? Now, how can we infer that Paul wanted others in the church to share in this? If you were here last week, you remember how Paul addresses the whole church in this letter. He writes not just to Philemon, but also to the church that meets in your house, to the ecclesia in your house. However many there were and wherever they met, he wanted this to be read to all of them. Now, I want you to think about how this challenges us, okay? Because I think we might have a temptation to either say nothing or maybe worse yet. If somebody comes to me, I have a friend who comes to me and says, man, um, I'm really upset with so-and-so. Or I'm really frustrated with my wife. My inclination might be, oh, dude, that's tough. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't believe she did that to you. We should go fishing and... And, uh, and, and sort of console him. There's, there's a real temptation there. Or your friend comes to you and says, says, you won't believe what she said, or you won't believe what my husband did. I'm really struggling. And, and I want you to think of the impact that this is read publicly. Okay. Paul wants this read publicly in the church and he's addressing, he's addressing Philemon. He's sending Onesimus back. He's making this appeal to him. He's telling everybody else, don't get in the way of that. Right? So what would I be doing if Paul had this read publicly in the church and I said, oh, man, you don't have to worry about that. You don't need to be reconciled to him. Listen, he hurt you bad. You just take some time. I, I can't imagine what it must feel like to have that hurt that you're carrying. You just, you just take some time. You give it some space. Listen, that's a toxic relationship. You don't, you don't need that. Okay? Paul shuts that down. He heads that off at the pass. Can you see that? By implicating everybody, he's, he's enlisting everybody to participate in this appeal. It's the responsibility for the church. It's the responsibility when you're in covenant with one another. 
your flesh and bones, your wife, your husband, your kids, your church family. They're your responsibility. That's an implication of being in the covenant. Okay? And we ought to point out that this, the responsibility to appeal is a responsibility to say something, not a responsibility to preach with actions and use words if necessary. Right? So we've been, we've been taught that. That's another sort of badge of honor. But that's not right. This isn't how people are saved. You have to share the truth of the gospel in order for anybody to believe and be born again. Right? You have to appeal to them to be reconciled to God, and you have to do that with communication. You have to use words. Okay? That's how people get saved. This is also how we appeal to one another to be reconciled with each other. You have to say something. Now, I pray that our actions never get in the way because they can, right? We can do things that undermine or contradict the message that we're sharing. Hopefully our actions align with and support. But the word translated appeal means appeal. It means exhort. It means you call somebody to something or you summon them to a standard. You cannot do what Paul is doing without words. It can't be done without some communication. Our responsibility is to appeal for reconciliation with and for one another. You do it with gentleness. You do it with patience. You do it with humility, but do it. Do it. Create that expectation. And we do it with confidence. We do it with confidence. Okay? Paul begins in verse 8 by saying that I have enough confidence in Christ to order or command Philemon to do what's proper. Hmm. So when Paul says that he has enough confidence in Christ to order Philemon, I don't believe that he primarily has in mind his apostolic authority but I would suggest that he is anchoring this and he's anchoring his confidence in something that we can share. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. None of us have apostolic authority. The word has that authority. Okay? But you can have the confidence that Paul is expressing when you understand the basis for it. I have confidence in Christ to expect this of you. When verse 8 begins... With a therefore, Paul is pointing us back to what's just been said. These first seven verses, these reasons that we talked about last week. Philemon, because of that back there, because of these reasons, you're bound to Christ and to his gospel message because you're bound to each other in a covenant relationship because the grace and peace that you've received from God, you've been the recipient of so much, brother, because active and effective faith is made visible by reconciliation Because I've already seen the Lord at work in you to encourage the saints. Because of these true things, I have enough confidence in Christ to expect this of you. To order it. To command it. There is no reason why it shouldn't happen. There is no reason why reconciliation shouldn't happen. Because it is what's proper. It's what's proper. That means it's what's suitable. It's what's becoming for the Christian. So the word proper here, it it describes the completion of a process or, or coming up to and arriving at a standard. It's measuring up to what is right. Okay? So, so Paul is, I don't believe that Paul is saying that he has confidence to bark orders to Philemon because he's an apostle, though perhaps he could. He's telling Philemon and he's telling us that he's confidently expecting Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus because he believes that Philemon is a genuine Christian. And a willingness to reconcile this relationship is the only option that is consistent with your Christian faith. Okay, We talked about this some last week, but evangelicals that embrace some form of cancel culture... Um, some form of, hey, listen, this relationship isn't affirming for me. It's toxic. It doesn't make me feel good. So therefore, I can cut it off. That's garbage. That's straight from hell. Reject that. Repudiate that. That is not from the Scripture. That is not what it means to be in covenant with other people. It's not proper for the Christian faith. Our belonging to Christ and to each other in covenant relationships should create a confident expectation that reconciliation can and should take place. This is fitting for our faith. And it's the answer to Paul's prayer for Philemon back in verse 6. I pray that the fellowship or the participation of your faith may become effective through every good thing that you have in Christ. His appeal is in a confident, a confident appeal, and it's an appeal for love's sake. 
our responsibility to appeal for the sake of love. So with this confidence in mind, Paul goes on to say here in verse 9 that it's for love's sake that he appeals to Philemon for the sake of love. Now, on one hand, I think it's right for us to conclude from this that Paul wants Philemon to forgive and be reconciled, not merely out of duty, though you do have this duty, brother. You do have this duty, but but out of mercy, out of love. And so, so surely Paul does not want Philemon to go, well, doggone it, I guess I'm under contract. Technically, I'm supposed to forgive you. Okay? He, he, wants, he wants a response from the heart. He wants, he wants this to be his motive. He's seeking to the driving force that will motivate and sustain us as we carry out this responsibility. Okay? So it's not as though he's disregarding the fact that there is a duty that I could command this of you, that it's the only thing that's proper. You need to do this. He's not backpedaling on any of that. He's strengthening this. Okay? So, so let's make sure that we don't misunderstand what Paul says. Okay? If you think that Paul is saying to you that you don't have a responsibility to reconcile if you don't feel love for somebody, or that you should be motivated by feelings of love for the other party, or that reconciliation can wait until you do feel feelings of love, for the other party, then I'm, I'm afraid you missed the point. So here's, here's why I'm belaboring this. I hear this often. Okay, If I appeal to somebody to forgive and be reconciled to another, it is not uncommon for somebody to say something like this. But, but Roger, I'm, I'm not really sure I mean it right now. And I want to mean it. Right? If I'm going to go and confess my sin, I don't really feel sorry. I don't want to be disingenuous. And I don't really feel like forgiving them right now. Wouldn't it be dishonest if I were to forgive them? I want to be genuine. Listen, I'm all about being real. Okay, So I want to do it when I'm feeling it. You see a problem with this? Okay, We're all tempted to some version of this. We're all tempted to some version of this. Allowing our feelings to govern. And and we might be tempted to, to... to think that if we're to do it for love's sake, then we're to let our feelings guide. But, but that would be exactly backwards here. That's not what this means. That would be getting this backwards. This serves as a correction and a reorientation and a guide for your feelings. Okay, This is a principle that you can live by. Please jot this down. Listen to me. Tell your feelings to listen to Jesus whenever they tell you not to. Right? Your feelings will sometimes tell you the truth. Your feelings will sometimes lie to you. Jesus has never lied to you. The word of God is always trustworthy. So when your emotions want to disobey the Lord, you tell them to salute him. You tell them to obey. When Paul says, for love's sake, rather I appeal to you, he's not disregarding what he said previously. And it doesn't mean instead of. This word rather, it's not, it's not adversative here. It's a comparative term. And it's more like saying... More than that, or even more so, it's only proper. I could command you. You have no reason not to. And even more than that, you have all the motivation in the world to do this. You have the best and most durable motivation to do what I'm asking you to do. Because of everything I've mentioned previously, I have this confidence, but even more so for love's sake. It means on account of love, not your feelings of love. What a flimsy foundation. We would be all over the place on account of the love that you have been shown. First John 4, 10 and 11. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. For love's sake. Do you remember Philemon? The way that God loved you and reconciled you to himself? You were an enemy? That's what I'm asking you to do. Love Onesimus in the way that Christ loved you. So the command is strengthened. As Paul anchors the exhortation and the reality of God's love for us. Consider that, Philemon, 
And do that for Onesimus. Consider that, brother or sister, and do that for the one who offended you. Do this for your husband. Do this for your wife. Consider the way that God loved you, and then allow your heart to overflow with this gratitude towards God, and let that flow right over to this other undeserving sinner for the sake of love, because Christ loved you. We're to pursue reconciliation out of the overflow of the love that we've received from God. This is the strongest and purest motivation for reconciliation with one another. It's good news. I love this. We talked about this last week. It's clear we have an obligation. It's clear we have a duty. And then we are not left without adequate resource. We're left with such a good motivation, a reason to even be grateful and excited about doing it. You realize that the moment somebody requires mercy of you is the moment you get to exult in the mercy that you've been shown. And your propensity to withhold it is saying something about how you're viewing the mercy that you've received. Almost like you've forgotten. Almost like maybe you don't need it. Brother, sister, exult in the mercy you've been given and turn around and give that to somebody who doesn't deserve it. Now, before we move on to the next point, I, I want to point out something quickly here from verse 10. Okay, Paul appeals for a new Onesimus. He appeals not for the Onesimus you knew previously, but, but by the grace of God, Onesimus was born again when Paul ministered to him. And in verse 11, Paul uses what I think is, is another wonderful play on words with Onesimus' name. Remember, Onesimus means useful. Okay? He says, Philemon, remember that slave named Useful? And how he became useless to you? Well, I'm sending him back to you, and, and guess what, pal? God has taken old useless and made him useful. <laughs> Look what God did. <laughs> so I think, this is, I think this is important for two reasons, okay? This is why I want to point this out. Okay, through this narrative... The Lord's reminding us that there is no such thing as a hopeless case. There's no such thing as a hopeless case. There's no one who's gone too far. There's no one who's outside of God's reach. And that should speak to you if you're here today and you don't know the Lord. If your life has been a mess and you're thinking that you've gone too far. If you're thinking that you can't be forgiven. If you're thinking that you can't change. Or that you've messed things up too badly in a relationship to be repaired. Or maybe that in God's economy... You're useless. Listen to me. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, God takes dead sinners and makes them alive. He takes a wasted life and he redeems it. He causes a natural man to be reborn of the spirit. And he takes that which was useless and he makes it useful. You're not too far gone. Not if you turn to Christ. Never too far gone. And, that, and now this should also speak to us if you're here today and you're thinking that you have a relationship that can't be reconciled. Maybe the circumstances are too overwhelming. Maybe you know somebody that you're just sure is not going to change. You're just, you're just sure. It's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. They're not willing to ask for forgiveness. They're not willing to extend it. You've given up praying. You assume it's impossible. Listen, I know that full reconciliation will require their cooperation. And I know that some circumstances are really stinking tough. But here's what else I know. We have a God who is capable of making all things new. We have a God who is able to take old useless and make him useful again. Okay? And then when we pursue reconciliation in these situations, it's a demonstration of our faith. Listen, not in the other person, but in God. Okay, this is what we often get wrong. I'm saying I'm not gonna or I can't because I'm not optimistic about what they've done or what they will do. Where is your hope? Okay, put your hope in God. We trust in him, not in other people. This is what we do as we pray for and pursue reconciliation. Okay, and look, Onesimus is now to be regarded as a brother. Okay, not only is he useful but he's a brother and you know what christ has regarded as useful philemon dare not regard as useless remember one part of the body can't say i have no need of another part there's a there's a weight being applied here in this appeal to paul okay so our first responsibility is to appeal but second we we need to send others or go ourselves 
Maybe we can infer this from verses 12 through 14. So clearly Paul sees our corporate responsibilities with respect to reconciliation as, re- as involving multiple parties. So he not only exhorts Philemon to forgive Onesimus, but he obviously tells Onesimus that he's got to go. Right? Okay, Paul sends him back, and Onesimus goes back. And, and I don't suppose that Paul said, you know what, Onesimus, give this some thought, and if you feel like it, and if the Spirit moves you, maybe start thinking about going back. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say wait for it to be safe and convenient. He doesn't say wait for an opportune time. He says, now's the time. Here's the letter. This is going to be hard. So the whole church needs to hear this, and Philemon needs to hear this, but go and ask for forgiveness. Go and ask for forgiveness. And I want you to notice three things about this sending. Okay, Paul sent Onesimus when it was hard for him to do. This guy's my very heart. He loves him. He doesn't want to send him away. But our responsibility is to send somebody when it's hard for us to do. You may have to tell somebody you love that they need to seek for forgiveness or pursue reconciliation in a relationship that they would rather avoid. I remember how much it shocked me because I wasn't thinking this way when I heard this story. This is maybe 15 years ago. Um, I was listening to this mature, godly Christian woman recall a time when her daughter, who was grown and married, came over to her house. Her daughter was having marital conflict. She came over with a bag packed and saying, Mama, I need a place to stay for a little while because things are hard at home. Can I stay here while things cool down? And her mama wouldn't let her in the door and said, no, ma'am, you need to go home and be reconciled to your husband. And I thought, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And then years later, this daughter was praising God and thanking her mom for the wisdom and saying, no, you don't practice for divorce. You don't, you don't put the training wheels for divorce on. You don't leave him when it's hard. You go towards him. You confess your sin and you forgive him. I don't have a place for you to stay if you're running from reconciliation. Okay? Go fix that and then come over with your husband. Right? That would be costly. Can you imagine how hard that would be for that mom? And what she's thinking? My daughter's not going to want to hear this. Right? Okay? We do it when it's costly. Okay? We do it when it's costly. Paul wanted to keep Onesimus. He loved him, but apparently the dude's pretty handy too, right? He, he, he was helping and ministering to Paul. It cost him a valuable helper out of time of need. But Paul understood that there was a greater need and a greater cost. There's a greater cost if he didn't send him to pursue reconciliation. And he did it at a time when all were vulnerable, okay? When all were vulnerable, Paul was losing a helper, as well as potentially losing two friends. If you think about this, Onesimus, i got a hard thing that I insist that you do. Philemon, I've got a hard thing I insist that you do. And, and our tendency might be to say, give me a break. Give me a break, Paul. And Onesimus was literally risking his life to take this letter back to his master. And Philemon's vulnerable. Imagine the situation. Here's the picture. Here comes old useless, the slave that lied and stole. And now I'm supposed to let that go? I mean, he hasn't demonstrated that he's trustworthy yet. I'm supposed to forgive him? What a vulnerable position to be in, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather be able to see months of a track record to prove that he's really sorry before you forgive him? That's vulnerable, isn't it? Okay. We send when it's hard. We send when it's costly, when we're vulnerable. Okay. When your friend that you don't want to upset is having conflict, you send them. You send her back. You send him back. Okay? And even if it means that you'll have to eat some crow, you go. You don't just send, but you go. You go when you aren't sure how they're going to respond. You go if you don't feel like it. And if you don't feel like it, you repent of not feeling like it, and then you go. Right? That's our responsibility. We have a responsibility to receive to accept the one who offended you. Verses 15 through 17. Paul reminds Philemon okay, of the always comforting sovereignty of God. I found this is a great comfort for, for believers and a frustration for an unbeliever. But for a believer, this is always 
a comforting thing. The sovereignty of God. Verse 15, it, it sort of echoes uh, Mordecai's words to Esther. You know, who knows? Maybe you were brought here for such a time as this. Paul's saying, maybe you lost him. Maybe you lost him. Maybe he hurt you so that you could display the gospel by having him back. He wants Philemon to take Onesimus back, receive him. And he says, maybe what Onesimus meant for evil, God meant for good. But that, but that turkey, he did me wrong. He meant to do me wrong. Right, like, like Joseph's brothers meant to do him wrong. Right? And what they meant for evil, God meant for good. What a challenge to us to pause and think about this here. Okay? When the relationship is broken, when it's a mess, you are where you are according to the sovereignty of God. Will you trust him by obeying him? Will you trust him and say, okay, what they intended for evil, perhaps you have me here for this reason, that I could take a small bit of the mercy you've shown me and put it on display to them. Would I, would, would I be grateful for that opportunity? Would I bear up under that with confidence in the sovereignty of God? We have a responsibility to, to receive. Okay? And in verse 15, Paul, Paul says, you have him back forever. Um, that's the word that's translated e- eternally from here on out. And I, and I believe that this is a reference again to the nature of the relationship. He's encouraging Philemon to display the covenant reality that Christ has accomplished when brothers are united in Christ. In fact, this is what he says in verse 16. Okay? Have him back, receive him back, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Part of your family, part of your family, treat him like a brother, not as a slave. As a highly regarded brother, receive him or accept him as you would Paul. Listen, Philemon, if you consider me a partner, then accept Onesimus because the Christ in me is the Christ in him. And and you know that if you're united to me, it's because we're united to Christ. And if you're united to Christ, then you're united to Onesimus in the same way. Don't show partiality. He's your brother. A highly regarded brother. Receive him like you would receive the most highly regarded Christian you know. Do not show partiality because of his past sins. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? We are tempted to let there be um, something inhibiting fellowship. We're tempted to be cold. We're tempted to not warm up to show partiality. Let it not be the case. And And... We have a responsibility to cancel the debt. To cancel the debt, the legitimate debt owed to you. A legitimate debt. Paul, knowing that the grievance is legitimate, that Onesimus really did owe Philemon, and and knowing that Philemon is probably going to be tempted to expect payment for the wrong done, he tells Philemon, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. I'll take care of it. Is it about the money? I'll, I'll help you out. I'll help you out if it's about the money. But is it about the money? Uh, well, if your buddy rips you off and then I come and spot you the exact amount that, that he ripped you off, are you okay with your buddy now? It's not about the money, is it? So, I, Listen, I don't think that Paul thought for a minute that Philemon would actually charge him. I don't think so. I think Paul is banking on the fact that this Christ-like demonstration of substitution and sacrifice would be a chastening reminder for Philemon to forgive. He's challenging him to let it go. Think about how this pictures Christ to Philemon. Hey, buddy, if that runaway slave who couldn't pay, if he owes you anything, if there's a debt that needs to be paid in order for him to be reconciled to you, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Hey, guys, don't you understand? That's what Jesus said for you. Father, charge their sins to me. Whatever wrong they've done, I'll pay it. Whatever price needs to be paid, I'll pay it. Whatever it takes for them to be reconciled, I'll do it. Your law demands perfection, I'll do it. Your law demands a punishment for sin, I'll do it. I'll do it. This was Paul's heart. Paul loved his brethren so much, he said in Romans, if I could go to hell and see them saved, I'd do it. I'd do it. This is this image of Christ to them. And so you see what he's doing? He's actually challenging him not to demand payment, to forget it. To forget it. Forget his debt. Now listen, 
this, this would be easy if it was actually as simple as forgetting. So if forgiveness was amnesia, that would be nice, right? But, but that actually wouldn't be forgiveness. That would be shallow. That would be cheap. What makes forgiveness so rich, what makes it so deep, what makes it something so sweet is the fact that you probably do remember it well. But you promise not to remember it against them. You choose to forget it by forsaking your right to be paid back and by promising to put it down and not prosecute when you do remember. You understand? You you probably need to be convinced of this. If you're like me, you need to be reminded in your relationships, in your marriages, don't keep a record of wrongs. Janelle doesn't do any wrongs. I mean her keeping a record of my wrongs. But but that, that prevents reconciliation. Okay? Transact forgiveness. Put it down. Leave it down. Will you remember? Yes, you will. And when you remember, you remember to forget it. You understand? It's not amnesia. It's a promise. It's a promise. Forget his debt. And then he strengthens this in verse 19. Um, not to mention that you owe, you owe your own self. You haven't, you haven't forgotten your debt, have you? I remember years ago, right after I became a Christian, I went to a football game with my uncle, and I'm sitting behind these guys that are using um, colorful language. And uh, I kind of give my uncle this elbow, and I said, man, I'm going to tell these turkeys to shut up. And he looked over, and he smiled, and he said, have you already forgotten how you used to talk? <laughs> Have you already forgotten? Oh. Paul's reminding Philemon that he too was once lost and through Paul's ministry came to know Christ just as Onesimus did. You were as dead. You were as much a slave. Your debt, actually let me remind you of your debt. It was bigger than his. And Christ paid it all. You know how enormous your debt was against God. You know that Jesus paid it all. You know that you were brought from death to life, from darkness to light. Brother, cancel Onesimus' debt. It is small in comparison to yours. Okay? Let me, uh, before we jump to the next one, let me, let me just reiterate how important this is, okay? Okay, this is one of the most difficult things for us to embrace, and it's one of the most likely things for us to trip on as we think about this. Our temptation when hurt or offended is to demand payment. But it's not really about the money. It's not really about actually making fair restitution. We want someone to pay for the wrong done. We want them to suffer. Sometimes we're bold enough to say so, but usually we don't come right out and say it. Our ways of demanding payment are usually more subtle. Do you act a little cold and withdraw? Say, yeah, I'm going to kind of harumph around the house and be grumpy. Not going to talk. Keep your distance. Okay, or, or you might be tempted in delaying reconciliation by saying things like this. Okay, this sounds super Christian. I don't want to enable that person in their sin. If I forgive them, they're going to think they can get away with that again. I don't want to enable them. Shouldn't I expect them to show signs of repentance before I forgive them? Listen, I know there are hard situations. There are complex situations where real thoughtfulness for how to, how to strengthen a relationship and build health and restore trust, there really is work that needs to be done sometimes. But most of the time when I've heard this, most of the time when people say this, it's out of a dressed up desire to make somebody pay. Okay? We want to hold on to the right to be hurt, and we want justice. We're tempted to withhold forgiveness or delay reconciliation because we want them to atone for it. Is that what you want? Do you really? Do you and I really want justice? Do we really want wrongs to be paid for like that? Where would that leave us in our relationship with others? I said this in jest, but if my wife were to be keeping a record of wrongs, we'd be in a miserable position. Right? Where would that leave us before the Lord? Do you want justice? You, listen, I promise you do not want what you want when you don't want to reconcile. You do not want what you want. You don't want to live by this standard. You love mercy when you need it. Right? Right? 
our fifth responsibility is to, to consider the impact on others. So not just those who need to seek or extend forgiveness, but those on the peripheral too. The rest of the church, the rest of your family, it's not just about you. Okay? This is another grave mistake that we make, thinking it's just about me or just about the two of us. So listen, we're, we're well acquainted with the difficulty and, uh, and the impact of fractured relationships, okay? Unreconciled relationships within a church that can, that can inhibit our fellowship and our cooperation in advancing the gospel. Unreconciled relationships in families, especially broken marriages, that, that threatens the stability of a civilization. The stakes are high. Our sin stinks up the place. It makes it a place that we don't want to be and can't function well. But goodness, on the other hand, when reconciliation and restoration is pursued, it's a display of the gospel that brings refreshment to our hearts. When you go to another and you say, you know what, what I did, what I said, it was sinful. I should have never done that and I don't deserve it. But would you forgive me? That's refreshment for the heart for that person and for all others. When you extend mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it and you say, you know what? I forgive you, and I'm not going to hold this against you. <laughs> That's a relationship you'd like to be in, isn't it? I'm not going to hold it against you. You refresh their hearts. You refresh your family. You refresh your church. Okay? It's a benefit to others. Okay? Another play on words, I think. Paul tells Philemon, let me benefit from you in the Lord. And that word benefit is the same word that's translated use, the root of Onesimus' name. Philemon, you remember the slave that his name is useful and how he became useless? Well, the Lord saved him, made him useful to God, to me, and to you. Now let me have some use from you. Let me have some use from you. Let me have some benefit from you in the Lord. Do the right thing here, buddy. And finally, our final responsibility is to obey in dependence on the grace of God. Obey in dependence on the grace of God. Paul is saying, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. Obedience is expected for Christians. Okay? He's conveying that he and therefore the church should have an expectation that there be a visible expression of obedience. He's saying this is how it ought to be. A defining characteristic of genuine Christian faith is a willingness to, to obey to, to obey the Lord and to have this submissive heart response to the commands of his word and the implications of the gospel. And in this case, and in every case, when there's broken fellowship, the visible expression of obedience is seen in a willingness to forgive and be reconciled. You tracking with me? Okay. Obedience is expected. But, but I, I don't believe that Paul is just holding out heavy-handed expectations of obedience. I think he's saying something that gives us confidence and courage. It's a help to Philemon and a help to us. You, you may remember from last week that Paul commended Philemon. Okay? He's already had much joy and comfort in his love and the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. Philemon was known as an obedient man. Philemon was known as an obedient man. Philemon was known as a genuine Christian. And so I believe what's happening here is Paul is talking about a future expectation for Philemon but he's also pointing backwards. He's drawing his attention to the work of God in his life. You have been obedient. The Lord has been at work in you. Okay? He saved you. He's been sanctifying you. You've been refreshing the hearts of the saints. Because God's in you, you're able to do this. You're able to even do more than I ask. Because I've seen the Lord at work in you, producing obedience and a submissive response to the gospel. I'm convinced that God can do this. What a courage-giving statement to Philemon and what encouragement and hope for us. I want us to think about this, okay? All right, the, the visible expression of obedience and a willingness to be reconciled is expected, but the confidence to do that is rooted in the faithfulness of God who's at work in each of our hearts. Otherwise, we wouldn't have reason for confidence. Okay, It's rooted in the work that God is doing. So you're in a hard relationship. Your marriage has trouble. There's patterns of breaking fellowship. You know that you've had a tendency to mess things up. Then you might inventory your track record and your strength, and you might just conclude that you have no hope, but that is not true if you're a Christian. 
That is not true if you're a Christian. God is at work in you to grow you and to change you. And no matter how poorly you've been doing, you do not have to live that way. Why? Because if Christ is in you, I'm confident that you can obey. If God is at work in you, I know that you will be able to do even more than I say because the confidence isn't in you, but in the God who's at work in you. You might say, but I approach this with fear and trembling. I'm not sure I can do that. And say, good, work that out with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The confidence for obedience is in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And that's going to lead us to our final point. We, the work that we do in carrying out our responsibilities and reconciliation, when you go, when you send, when you appeal, when you cancel the debt, it's not something we do in our own strength, but independence. Independence. In verses 22 through 24, Paul reminds us there are no lone rangers. He didn't fly solo. He depended heavily on others in his life and ministry. The advance of the gospel is a community project. We are yoked together with fellow workers in this amazing privilege and in this immense struggle to make Christ known and to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Depend on the ones that God has placed beside you in covenant community for support, for accountability, for counsel, for strength, for encouragement. Don't get isolated. You weren't made for that. And don't do this in your own strength. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You need grace. Why? Well, consider with me again what Paul's asking these guys to do. Onesimus, I want you to risk your life. I want you to hand carry this letter back to Philemon, and I want you to plead for forgiveness. I know, son, that doesn't feel wise. And that sounds impossible. That sounds like too great a task and too great a risk, but his grace is greater. His grace is greater. Philemon, I'm sending you the slave who stole from you and ran away. He cost you greatly and he insulted you even worse. I want you to forgive him. I want you to cancel his debt. I want you to treat him like a brother. In fact, treat him like you would treat me. Paul, do you have any idea how much that hurt? Do you have any idea how hard that is? I don't feel like doing that. Hey, this is a great pain. I know so. But his... His grace is greater. You've tasted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that grace is at work in you now. So reach into that vast well of every good thing that you have in Christ. Acknowledge it. Depend on the Lord and his grace. And you do what the world says is foolish. Forgive your brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your sufficient and authoritative word. We thank you for the courage and the hope that you give us. Thank you for speaking to every area of our life. And I pray, Lord, that the result of our time together today would be an encouragement and a gratitude for believers. Lord, as we understand, as we think carefully about the mercy that we've received, that rather than resent it, we would actually begin to see it as our incredible privilege that you would let us show that mercy to the one who offended us. Let us be people who genuinely display the gospel in this way seeking for reconciliation so as to love each other and to give you the glory that you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please? Okay. We go out from here today, and we've been talking about reconciliation. We know that if you're in Christ, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. God is making his appeal to the unbelieving world through us, and that will require us to speak. And what we have to speak is a message of profound hope. That God is not going to count their sins against them if they turn to Christ and accept his forgiveness and his righteousness. So let's go share this good news. Let's appeal. And then let's be a people who display that reality in our own lives by appealing to one another to be reconciled with each other and by be willing to fulfill our responsibilities. Go in peace.